Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I think that this is an attempt to create a new kind of base, an you know, enraged, grieving base, which will always think that the election was stolen. And this will be a base that is usable. This will be a base that not only dislikes the Democratic Party or disagrees with them, it will think that the Democratic Party is evil and anti-democratic, that they have stolen the election. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So today is Tuesday the 10th. It is one week since Election Day. It is four days since most of the networks called the election. Donald Trump has not conceded. He is saying that he won the election, that he won it big, that it was stolen from him, that he's going to fight back. None of which is a surprise. It's what he said he would do. It's what he said he would do in 2016. It's what he said he would do in 2020. And he's doing it. But he's gone further than that. He is executing a purge of top officials in the military, beginning with Defense Secretary Mark Esper. If we saw this somewhere else, we would know what to call it. That this coup attempt will probably not work does not mean it is not important, does not mean it is not dangerous, and does not mean it cannot work. The fact that it is being carried out farcically and erratically and ineffectively, it doesn't mean it's not happening or that it won't have consequences. And in in fact, the fact that it is being carried out so farcically, erratically and ineffectively, but has captured the Republican Party so completely makes it in some ways a more dangerous signal of where our political system really is and how vulnerable it really is. I want to say this so clearly. What has chilled me in all this is not Donald Trump, never Donald Trump. He is acting exactly as I expected him to. He is always acting exactly as he promises to. It is a rest of the Republican Party. Republicans have taken overall two strategies in response here. One is to wholeheartedly endorse Trump's claim. Senator Lindsey Graham went on Fox News to say Trump shouldn't concede and Democrats only win elections when they steal them. Lindsey Graham knows better, but he is fully, fully, fully bought in. The other, the other strategy we've seen is to make these carefully worded statements that signal a kind of emotional solidarity with Donald Trump without fully endorsing his claims of theft. Vice President Mike Pence, for instance, tweeted, I stand with Donald Trump. We must count every legal vote. And the trick, of course, is that's not what Trump wants done. It's actually what the Democrats want done. So Pence there has a way of walking the line. And that's what a lot of Republicans are doing right now. And there's a reason they're doing it. They think they need the energy of Trump's aggrieved, angry base and the support of Trump himself to win, among other things, the Georgia Senate runoffs. Nobody wants to be 
a Republican, an elected Republican at odds with the Trumpist base. Indeed, in Georgia, the two Republicans running for Senate, they've called for the Republican Secretary of the State in Georgia to resign because of something. They have not substantiated any electoral malfeasance, with the exception maybe that Trump lost. But that's enough. That is itself a kind of electoral malfeasance. That is the failure. The mark of an election that was well-conducted in this country right now to the Republican Party is that a Republican won it. All these Republicans out there saying the media doesn't project winners, they're not saying that the projected winners who are Republicans in Senate and House races are not real winners. They're not saying that those same ballots that elected Republicans to Senate and House uh, seats were stolen or cheated or somehow fraudulent. The mark of a well-conducted election right now to the Republican Party is that they won it. This is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. However it ends, we've seen both in the past four years and in the past four days how swiftly and easily the Republican Party will coalesce around an authoritarian demagogue, how much it will burn on the altar of short-term electoral self-interest. And so even if Biden takes the presidency as planned, as expected in January, none of this is truly over. This Republican Party is still here. Trump's Republican Party is still here. The Republican Party that made Trump and accepted him and defended him again and again, that is still the Republican Party that will control the Senate, the Supreme Court, most state legislatures, redistricting, and so much more. And so it is so clear that our system is completely undefended, that someone more capable than Trump could easily exploit its weaknesses. And that weakness, above all, is the Republican Party itself, what it will accept, what it will defend, what it has become. There's just no other way to say it. There's no other way to say it. This, then, is not a podcast about Donald Trump, really. It's a podcast about why he was able to take over the Republican Party so easily, why authoritarians in country after country are able to co-op parties so easily. That's the question, not the authoritarian demagogue himself, usually is a he, but all the people he convinces, the people who know better, who know better at the beginning and by the end are sycophants. The people who see the danger at the beginning and by the end, they are themselves the danger. For this conversation, I wanted to have Anne Applebaum on the show. Uh, Anne is a writer at The Atlantic. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Gulag. But her most recent book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, is all about answering this question. What makes authoritarian demagogues appealing to people who otherwise and in other contexts thought themselves patriotic defenders of liberal democracy? What makes some other people resist those blurs? Her background is in Eastern Europe, where the experience with these weaknesses has been sharper and more complete and more grievous. But that's given her a particular clarity when viewing America, because she doesn't come with some of the, the myths and the inability to imagine how it could turn out another way that we have here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Anne Applebaum. Anne Applebaum, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So how do you think what Trump and the Republican Party are doing right now, saying right now, how would we cover it and understand it if it were happening in another country? If this were happening in another country, we would be talking about a populist authoritarian seeking to create disillusion with democracy in his country in order to have a base of voters or supporters who would help him return to power. But I don't think we have to talk about it as if it were in another country. I'm very happy to use the same language uh, that I would use if this were happening in 
you know, Brazil or Argentina or anywhere else. Um, and I'm happy to use it in the United States. Yeah, I, I think this is important. So I wrote this piece over the weekend about this, and it began by looking at this explosion of pieces that happened over the past four or six years. Uh, Joshua Keating at Slate popularized the form of if it happened there, and people would write about you know, government shutdown or a riot or a police execution or some of the terrible things that have happened here using the tropes of foreign coverage. And, and, and one of the points I actually made in my piece is exactly what you just said, that we have to be uncovering these things as if they are happening here. I think that Americans, and I would include myself in this, have had an implicit exceptionalism in the way we understood our country's immunity to some of the political trends and dangers that afflict other countries, as if authoritarianism can't happen here, as if our parties can't turn against democracy here. And that just no longer seems true. Is it time, is it, is it time for Americans to be disabused of the idea that there's any, any special protection to our system or our political culture? So this is a conclusion that I actually came to several years ago, um, and it was partly through the kind of, um, you know, agonizing personal experience um, of living in Poland, which is where I live part of the time. I'm married to a Pole. He's a he's a politician, former foreign minister. Watching one of the political parties here become a populist authoritarian party. Um, watching it try to undermine democracy, undermine the courts, undermine the media once it came to power, and then glancing over at the United States and realizing that I was seeing many of the same things. It would make, of course, sense to nobody except me to say that it was I actually saw the story the other way around. It wasn't that it wasn't that I was looking at Poland as a foreign country. I was looking at America as a foreign country from Poland. I thought, well, that's that looks exactly like things that I've seen here in the past. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's not just American, it's partly American exceptionalism. It's also partly our incredible luck over the past six or seven decades. You know, we had a stable democracy, we had an expansion of prosperity, we were the leading country in the world, others were following us. And we somehow came to assume that it was always going to be like that. And just because it had been like that for 60 or 70 years, it would go on indefinitely. And we forgot that, you know, even in our own history, we had previous moments when democracy was in doubt and we had a civil war. And even if you look at our own constitution, our constitution was written by people who also had doubts about democracy and also wondered whether it would succeed. And one of the reasons we have some of the odd institutions that we do is that the founding fathers were people who had doubts about human nature, who wanted checks and balances, who wanted some control over the president, who worried about, um, you know, they were reading Greek and Roman history where there were lots of stories of democracy going wrong. And all of that was coded into the system from the very beginning. And I just think that the the luck and wealth, you know, relatively speaking, of the last several decades blinded us to our own history and our own origins. One of the things that always strikes me as so ironic or tension-filled uh, uh, about that part of our history is that when I go back and I read the Founding Fathers, when I go back and I read Hamilton or Madison on the Electoral College or the way Congress was constructed or the impeachment power, it's very clear in that era that a lot of the concerns about democracy, which they defined as much more of a direct form of democracy, but just a lot of concerns about mob rule in general were about the fear that the mob would elect an incompetent, corrupt, demagogic, Gogic con man. 
And so the founding fathers put in all these different checks and balances in place, the electoral college, where you would have these representatives who were a final check on what the uh, on what the votes had created, the Senate, which would be elected by by state legislatures. And yet it is the same people now who see themselves as most in that tradition, who are the most defensive of the value of the Electoral College, the value of uh, repealing the 17th Amendment, who are also on the side of the demagogic outsider, who's the exact kind of person all this stuff was built to keep out of the system. It it just strikes me as a very sad, um, a sad way for all that to end up. I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I'm I'm always bemused by when people talk about the Electoral College um, is that they've forgotten what it was originally supposed to be. It was supposed to be a bunch of elite, you know, kind of lawyers and politicians in states who would have a look at the people's choice. And if the people's choice was unworthy, they would then discard him. And that was the that was kind of the original idea. In fact, I don't think it ever really worked that way. And from the beginning, um, it 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 was dysfunctional. So you're right that people have forgotten that that was the origin. And but but you're also pointing us to a, a bigger story, which I think has even broader implications, which is to do with the Republican Party having, I mean, not just turned away from the bits of the Constitution that it used to celebrate, but the policies that it used to celebrate, the rules about character and the personality of the president that it used to celebrate. I mean, almost everything that it stood for over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years have been abandoned with amazing speed in the last four years. I mean, there's a buildup to that. It's, you know, it didn't happen overnight um, in, in exactly that way. But yes, the giving in to a demagogue is only the beginning of the story. So as a signpost for this conversation for for folks listening, I want to say this clearly. I don't find Donald Trump very interesting in this story. I, I think what he is is known. He's always been there historically. He's a very familiar type. What I am interested in is 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 that question of the Republican Party, of how quickly it's fallen to somebody who, and we'll talk about this later, doesn't even strike me as having presented the hardest of imaginable tests. But it's one reason, and that I, I was so interested in your book as a, as a commentary in this moment, because so much of the architecture of that book is about watching friends of yours, people you admired and respected, people who you were arm in arm with in fighting against tyrannies and, and, and strong men and trying to move towards liberal democracy become functionaries in populist right authoritarian parties, often become authoritarians themselves. What have you concluded about what separates the people who end up as dissidents in those moments from those who become uh, functionaries in them or accommodate themselves to them? So I actually, first of all, I agree with you. I don't think Trump himself is personally very interesting. And my book is not about autocrats. It's about the people who work for them, who create them, who sell their myth and their legend and who promote them. Um, And those are, and one of the reasons I wrote about them, as you say, is because some of them in some countries are people who I know. Um, And so it seemed like I, maybe I had, I had some insight. I mean, both in that book and in a couple of articles I've written on a similar theme in the Atlantic, um, I've tried to stay away from sweeping vast generalizations. You know, they are all like X or they are all like Y. Um, there's a famous historian of Vichy who who once wrote that um, he would have to write, he, he could never write a book about collaboration. He would write about collaborationisms because people's path towards this kind of political change is is so different depending on on their personality and background and 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 their interests. 
Um, the only the only sentiment I think that you can say that links them, and here we're you know we're talking about people who were once part of the center right or the in my case the anti communist movement in Poland or Reaganism or Thatcherism and who bank, who began to change in a in a in a different direction over the past decade or so. The one thing that does tend to link them is disappointment. Um, so these are very often people who are disappointed and they are almost always disappointed with their society, whether it's the dullness and superficiality of modern democracy, whether it's the demographic change that they don't want or like, whether it's the decline in morals and values that they see all around them, whether, you know, in the case of Britain, it's the, it's the you know, England's loss of, a, of its voice in the world and its reduction to a medium-sized country that acts in, you know, together with other European countries rather than striking out on its own as it once did. Um, so it's a feeling of loss or disappointment. And sometimes it's quite an extreme form of disappointment. You know, it's a kind of despair. You know, my society has ended. I, mean, I, I, I wrote a little bit about someone who was a friend of mine, uh, Roger Scruton, who was a British philosopher, who wrote a really extraordinary book about England, his country. Uh, he's he's English English um, conservative writer. He wrote about England. He you know he wrote an you know it's an I'm writing an elegy to my country. I'm writing I'm writing about a country that has died. I'm going to tell you about the values of the country that used to exist. In other words, he's someone who had already moved beyond the idea of decline or decay, and to the idea that it was gone. And I think anybody who has that view of the contemporary world, that it's over, it's finished, my civilization is dead and gone, you know, my society is decayed, that view leads you in, almost inevitably into a kind of radicalism. And you can have that view on the left too, by the way. This is not necessarily a, at all unique to the right. It's just that I wrote about the right because that's, that's the piece of it that I know. But if you have that feeling that it's over, then you know, then why wouldn't you try to smash everything? If everything's a disaster, if civilization is dead, if if morality is declined, you know, if traditional values can't be recovered, then you might as well have whatever you want to call it, the Flight 93 election or the let's change the system or let's let's replace the elite with a new elite. Those are all the same kinds of sentiments. So, but you, I mean, it plays itself out in different ways. Um, you know, you can find people who are also personally disappointed. So whatever it is about the current political circumstances isn't good for their careers. And sometimes that's a factor. You know, they see that by aligning themselves to a movement, they can, I don't know, become more popular or make more money or have more power. And sometimes that's that's it. And, and sometimes it is quite philosophical. You know, the this, you know, the, my civilization is dead and it I'm I'm now going to be part of smashing it. And that's usually the link that you find, particularly on, you know, on the most radical part of the right, as well as the most radical part of the left. So I think as a, as a very quick typology here in the Republican Party, I think you could cut people into, into three groups. There are the people who they liked Donald Trump from the beginning, or as you say, they bought into an apocalyptic understanding of America that Donald Trump seemed to share. So a good example is to be Patrick Buchanan. If you if you read his book and, and you write about him in your book too, The Death of the West, I mean, you see a much more coherent, cohesive form of Trumpism before Trump. 
Then there are people who maybe are in the middle of the, the, the Republican Party where they don't have unbelievably strong feelings about Donald Trump, but they really hate the left. They're the anti-anti-Trumpers and their their dislike for the left is enough to make them make peace with whatever it is that is is there about Trump. I'd maybe put a Mitch McConnell in this category. The people I'm most interested in are the people who they saw exactly what Donald Trump is and they loathed it and then also accommodated to it. And, and somebody I want to use here as a case study, because you've written about him and, and I've spent some time reporting with him as well, is Lindsey Graham. He ran against Donald Trump in 2016. He called him, and I'm quoting Graham here, a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And he said, if we nominate Trump, we will get destroyed and we will deserve it. Now he's out there, he's telling Trump not to concede the election. He's saying that if Republicans concede, they'll never win again. He's telling Sean Hannity that Democrats only win elections when they cheat. I mean, he's on the same, like he believes he won the election on the same kind of ballot that he's now saying are are, are, are full of cheaters. What do you think happened to Lindsey Graham? I mean, the, Lindsey Graham is particularly uh, difficult to explain when you look at where he comes from in his background, because if you were to, you know, kind of stand, you know, a million miles away from him and look at him as a, as a type, you would imagine him to be the most loyal American patriot constitution, you know, admirer of the constitution there is. You know, he's from a small town in South Carolina. He's a very strong affiliation to the military. He got through college on a military scholarship. He, um, you know, brought his sister, you know, was his parents died when he was young. So he had a kind of hard knock story and was saved by the American military. And he has said that many times. Um, He's someone who, you know, you know, if you if you were if you were to imagine a type of person who would never betray American ideas, it would be Lindsey Graham. But this is where you have to get into questions of, you know, personality and personal weakness and what kinds of character people have. I mean, I think, um, you know, Graham is clearly someone who is um, who needs to be around a leader or who has you know, who is not himself the leader of a movement, but is a, is the number two. So he, you know, in for many, many years, he was kind of John McCain's sidekick. And in those years, he was a McCainite Republican. And he sounded, you know, he's, you know, I, I met him, I saw him at conferences in Europe where he talked about America's role in the world and America promoting democracy. And then when McCain died, he seemed to need another role. And he, you know, attached himself to Trump he appears to like the role of, you know, power broker. So I, you know, when he runs into journalists in Washington or others in Washington, he knows he likes recounting how he was just on the phone with the president. He was just in touch with him. So he, the feeling of being close to power, of being, you know, next to someone important, you know, being the person who then, you know, transmits that power to other people. This is somehow a role that he is psychologically attached to playing. I mean, I don't, I don't know him well enough and I don't have enough um, you know, I'm not, I don't want to do a phony psychological analysis of him, but this is a recognizable personality type. Again, you can, if you look at the story of other countries where, uh, you know, nations that have been occupied by others or where people are part of political systems that they don't admire, you will always find people like Lindsey Graham who kind of give up their ideas, who who move close to power and who who then seek to play some kind of role in the new system benefiting them. And probably he explains it to himself as, you know, he's benefiting the United States in some way. I mean, he he will be telling himself a story about how what he's doing is useful or important. 
I mean, my understanding of, of him, and, and I've spent a bit of time with him over the years, was in the middle of the Trump era, as he began to make this transition, he was explaining it in terms of if he flattered Trump enough, he could direct Trump in important ways on things that are important to him, particularly um, foreign policy. This ends up, I think, in a lot of ways failing. Um, take the abandonment of the Kurds, which was a, a huge blow to, 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 to Graham in the way he thought. But he does try to become this advisor to Trump. And as I understood it from him and people around him at the time, there was a, a certain level of just real politic about that. And then slowly, it clearly became something other than that, that he... He, he made a series of decisions that narrowed the space, but then at some point there was no space left. And then he began to look at things through new eyes. He was very radicalized by the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. You know, he's out there um, telling people that the thing about the left is they hate us. You know, all those smart people out there, they hate us, that, that he feels very uh, embattled. And something that you emphasize in the book is the way that cooperating with a regime like this often is a product not of one big decision, I'm going to change sides, but of a series of small decisions, a series of small accommodations that eventually you wake up and you're on the other side. The people you're listening to are on the other side. You've made enemies with the people who used to be your allies. And so the whole world ends up being different. And I'd, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that, the way, the way it is a series of small decisions, not one big one, that ends up seeing parties and people accommodate to something that they would have rejected just a couple of years before. So there's actually social science studies of this, and usually it's done in the form of examination of corruption inside companies. So how do people come to go along with corruption, you know, if their company is carrying out some kind of scam? And the studies do show that it's always a step-by-step process. In other words, you accept one aspect of it. Okay, well, Everybody else is keeping double books, so I can too, you know, and that's just what people do in this company and it's normal. And then the next step is I'll do this transaction in cash and I'll keep it in the drawer and, you know, I'm still a good person, you know, I'm still a, a, you know, a, a good worker. I'm doing this to help my company stay out of trouble or stay above, keep its head above water. And as people take, as each step becomes normalized, as people get used to the situation, then they can take the next step. And this is very, very similar to what happens in occupied countries. Um, And I'm not saying that, you know, the United States is Vichy France or the United States is, is occupied East Germany. But these are useful parallels to look at because they show you what human psychology is like when someone is working inside a system, you know, whose ideology they previously disagreed with or disliked. And you see the same kinds of patterns. Um, You know, I wrote about this in, uh, I wrote a book about Eastern Europe after the Second World War and the Sovietization of Eastern Europe. And I I found these very specific examples. I mean, for example, you know, you can look at a, a printing press in East Germany after the war. You know, a law is passed that says the printing press is not allowed to print anything except what's you know been decreed by the central plan. And so the head of the printing press who has, you know, a, a mother in the hospital and his wife is, you know, ill and his children need to get to university and so on, you know, decides, okay, well, so if that's the rule, then I'll go along with it. And I won't print the dissident pamphlet that my friend wants me to print because, you know, it's against the law. And then you know, and 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 he makes these decisions always with the feeling that he himself is a good person and a good citizen, and he's making a a, a decision, you know, that 
takes into the interest his wife and his mother-in-law and his family and so on and his, uh, you know, and, and he never has the sense that he's doing something immoral. But, you know, when everybody at every printing press in all of East Germany takes the same kind of decision, eventually the only things being printed are, um, you know, the, the the books about lauding Stalin and the, um, you know, and the German Communist Party and all kinds of other literature eventually disappears. And something like that also happened inside the Republican Party, namely that people who thought of themselves as patriots, as good people, as politicians working in the, you know, in the interest of the United States, you know, made small decisions over time, each time reminding themselves that what they were doing was for the good of the country. It was for, um, you know, they were, as you said, like Lindsey Graham, you know, I'm here to make sure, you know, I'm going to, you know, guide Donald Trump in the right direction. Um, and then as e- at each stage, the situation becomes normalized, you know, eventually Lindsey Graham came to see any of his opponents as, you know, anti-American, radical leftist socialists, you know, whom he had to, you know, he's, and he still thinks he's probably still thinks that he's playing the same role, you know, that he's, he's a good person fighting for American values, you know, even though what he's doing is almost precisely the opposite of what he said he would do or the kind of person that he was four years ago. Yezer Klancha will be back after a short break. I want to talk about one of those decision trees that I think is happening right now, which has to do with the stolen election narrative that is taking hold among the Republican base. And so Donald Trump, who knows what he really believes, but he is simply he is certainly saying outright in in all caps that he won the election and it has been stolen. Now, there's some Republicans who are siding with him explicitly on that. Lindsey Graham appears to be siding with him explicitly on that. But many of the others, if you read them more closely, they're doing something that I would describe as signaling emotional solidarity with that while not quite buying into it, but not saying anything that could be that that would actually interrupt it. So I'll, I'll read a Marco Rubio tweet here. The media can project an election winner, but they don't get to decide if claims of broken election laws and irregularities are true. That is decided by the courts and on the basis of clear evidence and the law. And I agree with everything in that tweet. But the point of that tweet is to add fuel to a fire that is saying something really quite different. And I think there is a belief among many elected Republicans right now that their base needs to grieve the election, that Donald Trump needs to grieve the election. And so it's best to indulge the idea that it might have been stolen, let them process law slowly, let the courts shut that down, and then you can move on in a less emotionally traumatic way for for your base. And I just, I don't think they're going to be able to control it in that way. I think this is going to overtake them just like all the other ones have overtaken them. But but I'm, I'm curious, do you have sympathy for that view? Is there something to be said for the Marco Rubio, you know, et cetera, um, effort to half indulge this, even if they're not fully going along with a, a coup argument? So I'm afraid that I think it's a little bit more sinister than that. Well, damn. I think that the, I think that this is certainly on Trump's part um, and other Republicans you know, are probably coming to see this the same way as well. I think that this is an attempt to create a new kind of base, an in, you know, enraged, grieving base, which will always think that the election was stolen and which will always assume that something went wrong and will always feel that they were deprived of something. And this base will then have uses in the future. Um, I don't believe it will be all of the Republican Party. Um, I, I can't tell you right now how many of them it will be, but it will be, 
a significant number of people. And in some congressional districts and some Senate, you know, in some states, it will be, it could even be a majority. And this will be, you know, a, a base that is usable. This will be a base that not only dislikes the Democratic Party or disagrees with them, it will think that the Democratic Party is evil and anti-democratic, that they have stolen the election. You know, think about think about what that means. That means that they aren't they aren't even a legitimate political party. It means that there is a base of people who will be not just skeptical of, you know, mainstream media, whatever you think mainstream media is. I mean, I think it probably now includes Fox. You know, they will be not just skeptical of Fox, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer. They will think all of those institutions are part of a deliberately constructed conspiracy to steal the presidency. And that kind of feeling, that, that, that conviction that, you know, the other side isn't just wrong, it's evil and traitorous, that's then a useful group of people um, who can be motivated politically and maybe in other ways in the future. One of the things that, that worries me there is that even if one part of the Republican Party is trying to create that conspiratorial base or feed it, and another just thinks that you're going to need to give this already conspiratorial base time to calm down and, and, and process, that the latter group may just be be wrong, and that there's a relationship between what you feed and what you indulge in your base, and then what they demand of you and what your space of action is. And so something you're seeing Don Trump Jr. saying is that if you want to run in 2024, you better be on our side on this or we're going to oppose you. We here being the, the Trump family and, and, and Trump faction. Something that you see in the Georgia runoff is now the two Georgia Republican Senate candidates are calling for no obvious reason for the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia to step down over an election that does not appear to have had obvious malfeasance in it, right? They don't have any evidence that anything went wrong. They just... This appears to be how they think they are going to whip up their base. Mitch McConnell seems to believe the same, given reporting. Republicans now believe that if they're going to win those Georgia runoffs, they need to harness the energy of a base that believes the election has been stolen from them. And if you do that, then eventually you find that your base is in control of you, that you fed this enough, that you can't be a national Republican who doesn't on some level take a knee to this kind of sentiment, who doesn't on some level act as if the Democrats literally stole the election and power from you. Um, this happened with birtherism before. It happened with Trump himself. It happened with parts of the Tea Party. There's always this effort. Republican leaders, I think, often believe they can harness this energy in the short term for themselves and then shut it down if it gets out of hand. But they've shown no ability to shut it down. Now, maybe they don't care because they do end up winning some power out of it. But I mean, that's how you get something like Donald Trump, which is not, I think, their preferred outcome. I'm curious from what you've seen in, in Eastern Europe or, or elsewhere how you think about that relationship between base and leadership and, and how much what the leadership feeds the base ends up being something the base and demands of that generation and, and, and all the leaders in that party. So I, I agree with you. And I mean, I think to some extent this has already happened in the United States and you can even see um, this quite of wannabe moderates like Senator Ben Sass, um, even to some extent Mitt Romney, although he's, he's, he's been braver than, than almost everybody else. You see them now trying to kind of negotiate with their base and, you know, and find a way to talk to, you know, this conspiratorial mob who they now need to have vote for them. You could even see it a little bit in the famous McCain concession speech from years ago when 
when he began thanking Barack Obama and people started booing and he said, no, no, calm down. I mean, this is a this is something that's been going on for a long time. Look, in Poland, we have a fascinating phenomenon right now where the radical base of the Polish ruling party, which is a national populist party, and it's not even the majority, it's a it's a minority of very fanatical Catholics has now just pushed the ruling party in a direction that it didn't necessarily want to go. So the ruling party just, it's a, it's a, uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but the ruling party changed the abortion law. In Poland, the abortion is basically illegal, but they changed the law even further so that women who were going to give birth to very malformed or even dead babies will have to carry the birth to term. And this caused a huge uh, backlash and mass demonstrations all over the country. And some inside the ruling party wanted to move back from this. But I think they now can't move back from it because they've now spawned a group that's even further to the right and even more extreme and even more fundamentalist. And they're now seeking to make sure that they accommodate that group so that it stays within their coalition. So yes, absolutely, the problem of losing your base or encouraging your base in fanaticism so that it pulls you even in directions you don't want to go is something you can absolutely see in other countries. And I want to pick up on on bringing McCain into this because you, you wrote a piece in 2008 about why you couldn't vote for John McCain despite your deep admiration of him. And, and the argument you basically made was that McCain was being overwhelmed by a political party that no longer shared his virtues and you didn't want that party near power. So, so I think you have a real record on, on noting that this does go back quite far and that the party that John McCain wanted to represent became the party of Sarah Palin, which led very directly to the party of Donald Trump. How do you think about that lineage? Like, Why did the party of John McCain become the party of Sarah Palin instead? I mean, I think you need to um, start even farther back. You know, You need to look at the Republican Party's record on race. You need to look at the Republican Party's means of communicating with its followers. I mean, look, the Republican Party historically was a broad coalition, just like the Democratic Party, by the way. I mean, it's in, in U.S. politics, you have no choice. And the Republican Party was a coalition that contained everything from cold warriors to people who wanted to promote democracy around the world to Southern racists to, um, uh, you know, uh, country club Republicans in New England, you know, it had this broad map of people who lived underneath this umbrella together very happily. It's hard to imagine now, but George W. Bush, when he first came to power, was what, what was his really big political idea? His really big idea was to reach out to Hispanics and to make the Republican Party the Hispanic, you know, the, the sort of Hispanic party by carrying out a very bold and brave form of immigration reform. And that was going to be his way of reaching out to the, you know, majority minority America, how the, you know, the new, new American demographics. Over time, I think what happened instead was that the party failed in some of those efforts. Uh, I think the, the perceived failure of the Iraq war is also part of the story. And the part of the party that supported Americans, America's role abroad, um, lost its influence. And the part of the party that stayed the most loyal and was the loudest and was the most supportive um, remained the part that was attached to, however you want to describe it, you know, this white identity politics, um, politics of grievance, 
politics of resentment. And that part of the party grew and eventually overtook the others and the uh, you know and other other groups and elements left. I think that that last piece is an important part of it. You have a nice piece and and in your book a, a chapter partly about Laura Ingram, the the Fox News anchor, who's become I would say one of the key pro-Trump media personalities in this era. But in your view, sort of started as something different and then took an ideological journey that, that mirrors the Republican Party. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you perceive her career? One of the ways to look at Laura Ingraham is as somebody who, despite being by any definition, a member of the American elite, she went to an Ivy League college, she worked for a Tony law firm, um, she has a lot of money, she lives in East Coast cities, she associates with other people who have a lot of money. She's somebody who always liked the image of herself and liked being on the outside of politics. And one of the reasons I think Reaganism appealed to her was, you know, again, as a graduate of Dartmouth, she had this, you know, sense, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this, you know, anti-communist movement. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm a, I'm a, we're, you know, we're on the cutting edge of history. We're going to win. And then we've won the Cold War, you know, despite and against the, you know, the, the, the left-wing intellectuals who disagreed with us. And then the trouble was that once having won the Cold War and having, you know, experienced that sense of, you know, I was on the avant-garde and I was right, it then became difficult for people like Laura, and this is, by the way, a very similar story you find um, in the UK and elsewhere, to figure out what the next cause was. Because what happens after you win the Cold War and after you win the big arguments? Well, then you have to go and clean up. You have to go and be, you know, you have the George H.W. Bush presidency or the John Major prime ministership where you go and reunite Europe and you rebuild institutions and you, I don't know, you, 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 you expand NATO and you, you, you work on these causes one by one and you govern and you rule and you seek, you know, ways to make people's lives better in small ways. But that doesn't give you that same feeling of being on the revolutionary avant-garde and being ahead of the curve and being an outsider who's going to overthrow the system. And one of the things that happened to Laura, and this is a, a phenomenon you can see across the right in a number of countries, was that the the sort of the boredom of the 90s, you know, the Clinton presidency, this period of prosperity wasn't really enough for them. And they wanted to keep fighting the culture war and they wanted to keep it going. Um, and they and they continued to push the envelope and to push against whatever it was that they decided the mainstream felt, and they began looking for new outlets. Um, you know, and Laura herself is an example of something that I was talking about at the beginning, which is also this increasing feeling of disappointment and boredom. You know, was this really the America that we fought for? You know, we won the Cold War, and now all we get is a bunch of squabbling politicians and arguments about health care, you know, no, you know, we, you know, we, we wanted something bigger than that. We want something better than that. We want, we want to be part of some kind of bigger argument. Um, and the growing disappointment with what America had become, as well as the desire to be an elitist radical, um, I think continued to motivate her and continued to motivate many others. When I look at 
the conservatives who ended up as never Trumpers who stayed that way. Many of them still are very animated by an idea of America's role in the world. They come out of the neoconservative wing of the movement very often. You know, they're bushies. They they saw America as having still a very specific role that had to be played out in terms of global leadership. Um, now, some people who believe that, like Lindsey Graham, also defected over to, to Trump. So it, it isn't a perfect heuristic. But a lot of the people who seem to have absorbed Trumpism most easily they had turned to believing already the enemies were internal, the enemies were inside. It was the cultural left. It was a loss of, of Christian values. It was a changing demography to Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson. I mean, when you listen to them, it's very much about the way the country is changing. And that that strikes me as actually an important break point here. There is something quite attractive about Donald Trump if you believe the enemies are internal, because he does too. Whereas if you're connected to the idea of the enemies or the project being external, he betrays that more often, right? He doesn't like a lot of other countries, but nevertheless, he's, he's more in a sort of isolationist vein um, and is much more contemptuous of previous Republican politicians and standard bearers that, that had theirs or animating impulse. You knew a lot of these people, so I'm curious if you think that holds up. I think that is actually extremely perceptive, and I think it's correct. You're, I think, maybe missing one aspect of it, which is why were the people who you describe as neoconservatives or people who were attached to the idea that there was a special role for America in the world, what was motivating them? And very often, it was the what was motivating them. And again, these are my friends, and actually, I should say me. You know, in this sense, I, I although I was have not been a Republican for many years, this this in this I have in common with them, was this belief in democracy, you know, as an idea, as an ideal, um, as something that America could help share with other countries or could help um, bring to the world, not necessarily, you know, in fact, usually never by, you know, through through invasion, but more through the power of example, through the, the kind of role that we played during the Cold War in Eastern Europe, for example, which I, you know, witnessed and remember and if you're attached to the idea of democracy, if you think that um, that 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 is the thing that makes America special, then Donald Trump was an abomination and remains an abomination because you know what he is, <laughs> what he seeks to be, um, you know, the way he maintains power is through undermining the faith that Americans have in their own political system, and is beginning with birtherism and continuing now with the. Um, the fake story about about stolen elections. Um, if you look at the nev- so-called never Trumpers, you'll find often that that's the distinction: is that people who were attached to the idea of democracy are the ones who just were never able to, um, you know, were never were never able to accept Donald Trump. I mean, if you were just ex- if it was if for you it was all about American power and the military and realpolitik, then maybe you felt a little bit differently about it. But if what you were really interested in was democracy then Donald Trump was just never, ever going to be acceptable to you. On that very specific note, I've been doing myself a lot of interviews in the past week or two, and I find that I keep being out of emotional step with the people I'm talking to because this may be changing now as the Republican Party coheres around the stolen election narrative. But I have found this whole era, and even in many ways this election, really depressing. And, and, And the reason is that Donald Trump doesn't strike me as a difficult challenge. He's not a competent autocrat where you have to choose between effective governance and and your liberties. He's not a strategic autocrat who hides his narcissism or his nepotism. He's not a beautiful speaker who cloaks his lust for power in glittering ideals. 
And yet the Republican Party fell so easily to him. It fell so easily to the most crude, bizarre, libertinish, secular, erratic, insulting person you could imagine, including, by the way, a lot of people in the Republican Party who he insulted, Ted Cruz, whose wife he insulted, Lindsey Graham, whose phone number he gave out. I mean, the whole thing is wild to me. So what do you think happens? I mean, what do you, what do we take from this as predictive when a more competent, capable, would-be autocrat or demagogue emerges? I think the possibility of a more competent autocrat emerging four years from now is one that cannot be excluded. Uh, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, you know, it's the the the, the shoddiness of Trump, but also the, the low stakes. I mean, the senators who, who were afraid to vote for Trump's impeachment, you know, despite the fact that he was abusing American military aid in order to bribe a foreign leader to launch a fake investigation of his political opponent. I mean, it was the most shoddy crime. It was a, you know, it was something that, you know, there were, there's no question, you know, a, a previous generation of, of politicians would have, would have chucked a president out for, you know, what was at stake? You know, they were going to lose their Senate seats and they might end up teaching at Harvard, you know, or they were going to, suffer a little bit in the polls or, you know, the president might attack them on Twitter. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to go to prison, you know, or they were going to suffer in some real way for defying the president for doing the right thing, you know, and yet all of them went along with it. So I I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that we very badly underestimated in the previous decade, probably how weak some of our political institutions are, certainly how weak the political parties are. Uh, how the, how they no longer serve as um, you know filters for extreme ideas, but also how how little faith Americans had in their own system. A fairly recent poll showed that twenty percent of Americans, when asked, say that they wouldn't mind living under military dictatorship. That's a you know that's a lot of people uh, who no longer have that much faith in our political institutions and how they work. It's a long, you know, longer conversation than we probably have time for today to decide to decide to understand why and how that happened. And there's a role that was played by changes in the media and social media. There's a role that was played by the financial crisis. There's a role that was played by politicians themselves. But are Americans prepared to accept some kind of autocrat? I mean, I think, unfortunately, the experience of the last four years and even, as you say, of the last week shows that many of them are. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. I want to be thoughtful in how I ask this next question. So I don't think this attempt to overturn the election is going to work. I do think Donald Trump is going to remain on the scene with a large percentage of the country believing that he has been robbed of his rightful second term. But Joe Biden is going to become president and he's going to have an an administration. And I I really wonder if there is anything the Democratic Party, and I I really mean here the elected Democratic Party, not people on Twitter, not 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 just activists, not, you know, media figures, but but there's going to be a president and, and, and a party in power. If there is any approach to governance that can begin to calm some of this on the right. And one reason I'm pessimistic, to be blunt, is that I think Barack Obama is very much the kind of figure you would imagine to to do that. He's somebody who believed in the legitimacy of disagreement. I think he did try in his ways to reach out. I'm not saying he was a perfect politician, but 
But I don't think he like I think he's somebody who thought hard about polarization and tried to be cautious with it. And yet he leads to Trump in part because of who he is and what he represents about a changing America. But given your experience um, watching, you know, Eastern European countries that have both had a had better and worse trajectories towards or away from a liberal democracy. I'm curious if there are lessons you take from this for the center left or even center right parties to be successful. Are there pitfalls to avoid? Are there things that seem to to work, you know, short of giving up on your entire governing agenda and, and, and handing the country, handing the keys over to Mitch McConnell? So I think there are lessons from Europe, not necessarily from here in Poland, where there hasn't yet been a, a successful coalition that has ousted the uh, populist authoritarians here. A really interesting, and it's it will sound odd, it's a very different kind of example, is Greece. And so Greece is a country where you had the opposite problem, namely you had a radical left party come to power. And this is at a moment of terrible economic crisis, catastrophe, I mean, really um, millions of people unemployed. We won't go into the details of Greek politics, but it has been replaced instead by a very centrist party, which now has returned Greece to a completely different kind of conversation. And the lesson there, and the lesson in a lot of other places where the support for anti-democratic and anti-pluralist populist parties has gone down, is that very often the best way to fight this kind of culture war populism is not even to deal with it. In other words, don't take it on. Don't fight the culture war at all. Instead, do real stuff. You know, so whatever it is in, in, in the given place, fix the roads or work on health care or focus on real things that people can see. And this is, by the way, how a lot of people have won election campaigns against populist parties as well. You know, instead of arguing about, you know, the fate of Christian civilization and the brown wave that's going to overwhelm us, instead talk about, you know, how do we reduce the number of cars on the road so that the traffic isn't such a big problem. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm now exaggerating to make a point, but if you can get the conversation back to stuff that actually affects people and they can see, then you have a better chance of both, of, first of all, of winning elections. This is one way to win against populists, but then also of calming this, you know, and ending this polarization once you can take power. I mean, if you can just get people to focus on real things and not the culture war, um, you can get ahead. The difficulty now, and this is one of the things I'm most worried about, is that you know, I actually think, I don't know whether he's thought about it in these terms. I suspect that Biden intuitively understands this. I mean, this is why the first thing he did on Monday after the election was to announce his COVID committee and he will be starting to negotiate his economic program right away. So the first things he did wasn't to respond to Trump in some loud way and bang his chest and say, I won the election, I won it, you know, I didn't steal it. Instead, he immediately pivoted to real things. So I think he understands this. The thing I'm worried about is that without the Senate, um, it is going to be very, very difficult for the Democrats to actually deliver on any of that stuff. I mean, I know the administration will do what it can from the White House, but um, the really big, deep economic changes that need to be made um, in a number of spheres, um, I'm, I'm, I fear the Democrats won't be able to do that because the way to shift the conversation would be through real actions. Whether that will be possible or not, I just don't know. 
this is my concern as well. And I don't think it will be possible. Uh, I mean, there are two questions that, that it brings up. So one, in the absence of being able to move forward on governance, and this is an argument I make on the show and in my pieces now all the time, symbolic politics takes over. If you can't argue over the bill actually moving through Congress, over whether the outcome of this healthcare reform was actually a good outcome, then what's left to argue over is the like the meta structure of politics. It's like random things that people found in a local newspaper that, you know, that now they want to argue about as a cultural flashpoint. It's the war on Christmas. It's like there's a real, there's a real vacuum created by an institutional structure that cannot govern. You just end up trapped endlessly in arguments because you can't govern enough to move forward towards any evaluation of results. And so this then gets to this question of defection or complicity. Some of the Republican senators who I think have been most laudable in this period, you know, not that I've agreed with everything they've done or anywhere near it, but have tried to remain Republicans, not Trumpists, right? And I would put in that category, obviously, Mitt Romney, but certainly still a Susan Collins, certainly Lisa Murkowski, and, and, and there are a couple others. I mean, there are people like Lamar Alexander or Pat Toomey, and, and Toomey's retiring. I mean, in, in 2022, Alexander is, is retired this year. They are going to have a choice to make about whether or not they defect from the Republican Party strategy of obstructionism and trying to make Biden a one-term president and win back in 2022, or whether they want to make it possible to move the conversation over to these kinds of negotiations. And I'm very pessimistic about this. I mean, everything in my work suggests it won't happen, right? That's basically what my book is about. But on some level, some part of them has to know and, and feel gutturally concerned with what they are unleashing here. And like my only little bit of hope is whether or not, you know, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Pat Toomey, they want their legacy to be that they move the country back to a different sort of politics because they don't want to go through the Trump experience themselves again. And the only way to get out of it is to create a different governing conversation. Again, I'm not predicting this, but, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a role for personal courage here. It's not all structure. Personal courage. I mean, I, my sense is that the Biden administration is also thinking along these lines and is also hoping, perhaps naively, that it will find people to cooperate with on the Republican side. I mean, certainly Biden, for you know, having been in the Senate for many years, is in a position to theoretically be able to do that if it's possible. But I agree. I mean, this will be a moment when it's not so much about politics, it's about character. And as you say, about legacies, you know, what does Mitt Romney want his legacy to be? What does Susan Collins want her legacy to be? What do these, you know, what do they, how do they want to be remembered? Or or do they even care about that? Are they still, you know, are, you know, will they be more worried about their base and about whether people will be mean to them on Twitter or whether people like Laura Ingraham will attack him on attack them on her show. I mean, you know, again, Laura is somebody Ingraham is somebody who flourishes in the culture war world, and she is she is good at this kind of non politics politics when it's about attacking the left. And if the conversation shifts to how do we really fix American health care, or how do we, you know, how do we really get small business going again after the pandemic? you know, then she's bored and uninterested and has very little to say. And so that, unfortunately, the direction of Republican media, you know, whether it's the primetime hosts on Fox or whether it's the Facebook world, 
does push in the culture war direction. It will take both courage and effort and um, um, real perseverance for a few Republicans to do something different. I think that's a good place to, to come to a close. Let me ask you, it's always a final question here, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience right now? So I thought about that question and I decided to be honest and I'm going to tell you what I've actually been reading for the past couple of months while watching the United States melt down. Um, and these aren't kind of hard political books of the kind that you write or even that I write. Um, I've been reading fiction. Um, one of the books I read recently that was revelatory, I'd read it in college and I've just reread it, is Absalom, Absalom, which is William Faulkner's famous novel, it will remind you of what the American South was like not that long ago. Um, it's a convoluted Gothic story of a plantation owner in the South and the fate of his family and so on. But it will, it's, it's, a, it's a harsh, sharp reminder of what that world really was like within really the memory, you know, in our, our memory of our, of our grandparents. Um, similarly, All the King's Men by William Penn Warren which I'm now about a third of the way through also rereading, um, a great book about American politics. Um, it's about the life of Huey Long, who was a, you know, the, our first really big modern populist um, Louisiana politician. Um, it's a novel loosely based on him. Again, a generation or two ago, what was politics like in Louisiana? It will remind you, you know, where we come from. The third book is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, um, which is a lovely, very subtle book about the American Midwest that touches on a lot of the issues that we're, we hear about every day in politics, you know, race, the role of religion in society, um, the way traditions and family life have changed in America. Um, but it does it from the perspective of a few ordinary people. And it really will make you look at American politics with fresh eyes. I, I love those recommendations. And I'll just note um, on, on Gilead that I, I can't second that enough. And Marilyn Robinson was just on the show about three weeks ago, one of my favorite episodes of the year. And if people haven't heard it, they should check that out as well. And Applebaum, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you to Anne Applebaum for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffy Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.